Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome to New Books in History. My name is Lane Davis. The story of Christian fundamentalism has seemed to be a well-told story in recent decades of American religious history. Uh, Books by historians like Ernest Sandine, George Marsden, among others, set the pace for understanding fundamentalism as a particular kind of institutional and intellectual movement in the 1970s and 1980s. That work was built upon, uh, uh, built upon in ensuing decades so that religious historians now have a rather robust set of texts explaining and analyzing fundamentalism from a variety of social, political, theological, and historical perspectives. Those texts, however, have tended to narrow the study of fundamentalism to specific groups of 20th century Christians, mostly white Protestants. Well, what most historians have overlooked or even outright dismissed is the idea that Christian fundamentalism appeared to uh, be in a more diverse group of people, including African-Americans in America's black churches. And that's the subject of the book that we're talking about today, Black Fundamentalists, Conservative Christianity and Racial Identity in the Segregation Era by Daniel R. Baer. It was published in 2021 by New York University Press. And this book seeks to correct this idea that fundamentalism was solely appealing to white Protestants. In fact, there's far more to this story, and I'm grateful to my guest, Daniel Baer, for taking the time to talk with me today. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. So the first question is really just kind of a broad one to get us started. Who were the black fundamentalists? Sure. Well, so fundamentalism in itself is sort of this fascinating example of conflict between theological conservatism and theological liberalism. And that's an issue that still persists to this day in various contexts. That's one of the reasons that the fundamentalist movement and the fundamentalist modernist conflict interested me uh, as I was getting into my studies in grad school. Uh, So fundamentalism in general was this reactionary movement against theological liberalization or what was sometimes called modernism in the early 20th century in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this liberalizing perspective Uh, was one that tried to kind of adapt Christian doctrines and practices to more closely comport with the ideas and philosophy and sensibilities of the modern world and the advances of modern science, uh, with the emphasis on reason or rationalism and naturalism coming out of the Enlightenment and things of that nature. Uh, And so for the more theologically conservative Christian groups, uh, many of them saw these adaptations that the that liberals or modernists were trying to implement as undermining or even eviscerating the true gospel, the true faith. The fundamentalists often called uh, the Christian faith. They talked about the faith once delivered to the saints, which is a reference from the New Testament. Mm. Uh, and so they said, well, the modernists that are making these changes, they're saying that these ways that we've traditionally understood these doctrines are no longer feasible uh, they said, well, these modernists are, are undermining the true faith of Christianity. Uh, and so the fundamentalists were the sort of conservative reactionaries to modernists, and they held to what they called the fundamentals. They said there are a, a, a variety of fundamental doctrines to the Christian faith. And if you jettison these or if you change these, you're not really a Christian. So things like uh, they identified things like biblical inerrancy, the idea that the Bible is without error and is inspired by God, Uh, the virgin birth of Jesus, as narrated in uh, some of the Gospels, Uh, the divinity of Christ, the literal resurrection and second coming of Christ, these sorts of things, uh, which modernists had begun to either challenge or to in some ways reformulate. Um, And so the fundamentalists were overtly and loudly anti-modernist in their outlook. And so I was reading and studying this uh, movement, And there's nothing in terms of the theological movement here that seems really to be restrictive to any particular racial group. Mm. Uh, But typically, as you noted, uh, fundamentalism was treated as and assumed to be sort of a strictly white phenomenon. Uh, So the black fundamentalists in my book are figures in the early to mid decades of the 20th century. My focus is really from 
the mid 1910s up through about 1940. And so these are black um, clergymen and black figures who uh, articulated and formulated a type of fundamentalist Protestantism within black communities and within black church contexts. And so when you look at them and you kind of see what they were saying, you see a lot of very interesting uh, similarities and parallels with their white fundamentalist counterparts. But as we'll get into in a few minutes, you also have some uh, some unique differences in the way that they applied their faith uh, in their particular uh, cultural and social context. Hmm. So a two-part question then, and, and this really does kind of deal with some of the issues that you get into specifically in your second chapter of the book. When African-Americans called themselves fundamentalists, uh, fundamentalists, you note that they often did so on their own terms. So what aspects of fundamentalism, as it has been traditionally defined, uh, were particularly resonant with black fundamentalists? And which aspects of the movement were altered or just rejected outright? Well, so much of the theological heartbeat of what you might call fundamentalism, and, and I, I really look at it as a largely theological enterprise, mm-hmm. um, not exclusively, but largely theological. So much of the theological heartbeat of fundamentalism uh, is almost identical across racial lines. That's something that, that really struck me as I was reading and I was researching for this project uh, was the uh, very, very close similarities that you see between white fundamentalists and these figures that I've identified in the historical record as black fundamentalists when it comes to the specific theological formulations uh, and arguments that they're making. Uh, And so fundamentalism is sometimes uh, associated with what's called the five fundamentals. And there were more than just five theological things that fundamentalists were concerned with, but sometimes it's kind of boiled down into a list of five, uh, which I identify and list in the book as the inerrancy of the Bible the virgin birth of Christ, the divinity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and his literal resurrection and literal second coming. So Mm -hmm. those are what I identify particularly in that second chapter as the five fundamentals. And I go on a a quest in that second chapter to compare the formulation and explication of these doctrines across racial lines. And you find that this explication is very similar between black and white fundamentalists. The Mm -hmm. black fundamentalists, uh, these these figures, these pastors and preachers and and denominational leaders that I identify um, are very, very similar. They're very consonant with uh, their white fundamentalist counterparts and even the the series of articles from which fundamentalism gained its name, a series of articles called The Fundamentals, published in the, uh, the early and mid 1910s. Um, in terms of their argumentation, in terms of the language they use, in terms of the kinds of words they use to describe modernism, in terms of the biblical texts that they turn to and the exegesis of those texts. Uh, If you put some of these arguments side by side from famous white fundamentalist leaders and some of these black fundamentalists, if you just put the theological arguments side by side, you would have a really hard time telling the difference in who's saying what, because they're, Hmm. they're almost identical. However, these black fundamentalists I discovered do depart from their white counterparts uh, often on certain kinds of social issues and applications and emphases. And so, for instance, a lot of white fundamentalists were engaged in these sort of militant culture wars on issues like prohibition or the teaching of evolution in public schools, right? The school curricula. Mm-hmm. And uh, fundamentalists, white fundamentalists, were often people like uh, J. Frank Norris, for example, uh, very famous Southern fundamentalists, were often engaged in these extended, protracted uh, culture wars fa- uh, based on these kinds of social issues uh, and emphases. Um, now, black fundamentalists uh, may have agreed on some of these things. They they often did uh, agree, for instance, on um, with their white fundamentalist counterparts on, on issues like uh, evolution or uh, certain moral reforms with regard to alcohol and drinking and things like that. Um, but they weren't, th- those weren't sort of the central foci necessarily. Uh, and so what we see with black fundamentalists is Uh, a willingness to apply the fundamental doctrines that they're teaching to issues of racial significance. 
Uh, and this is really interesting because a lot of the white fundamentalists, especially Southerners like J. Frank Norris, as I mentioned, um, also assumed the, the rectitude of uh, Jim Crow and racial segregation uh, mm. and white supremacy. And for Norris, I was just actually recently rereading um, a really interesting biography on J. Frank Norris uh, called God's Rascals. Really fascinating. Uh, and the book made a point of showing how Norris just assumed racial segregation and white supremacy to be the way the world worked and, in fact, to be the God-ordained social order. So for Norris, that was sort of on par with the divinity of Christ or the inspiration of the Bible. That's just how God made the world to work. And Norris often connected all of the movements that he was attacking, be it communism or Catholicism or modernists or whatever, uh, he would connect those with ideas of race mixing and uh, overturning the God-ordained Jim Crow social order as a way of trying to smear his opponents. Mm. But black fundamentalists are doing sort of almost the inverse, right? They're taking their fundamentalist convictions, these doctrines with which, uh, in terms of the specifics of the doctrine, they would align with someone like J. Frank Norris on the divinity of Jesus or the inspiration of the Bible. But they're taking these fundamental convictions, the fundamentalist convictions, and applying them in ways that supported the idea of racial advancement and mm. racial progress and racial equality and trying to actually undermine the Jim Crow social order of the day because they saw that as fundamentally opposed to the fundamentalist truths that are laid out there in the Bible and, and are uh, adhered to by the fundamentalist movement. So that's a little bit on sort of how they uh, they dovetail with what we've typically looked at as fundamentalism in terms of fundamentalists in the white community. Uh, they kind of dovetail on the theological heartbeat, but they definitely diverge in some pretty significant ways on social applications. Hmm. I, I guess I can kind of see why historians might have, have uh, assumed for so many years that Fundamentalism must have have simply been a white Protestant issue with mm -hmm. folks like like Norris, but I, I it does seem odd, I guess, with with your findings that so many uh, African American pastors and parishioners as well were were using fundamentalist language. I guess this gets into the historiographical question, which is when mm -hmm. did you first realize there was this gap in the historical literature over? the inclusion of African-Americans in fundamentalism? What, what was sort of the catalyst for your work on this group? Yeah, so as with, I think, probably most projects, uh, this came about from just reading a lot. I was interested in the fundamentalist movement in general, like I said, because this sort of conflict between theological conservatism and theological liberalism is something that you can still see very clearly in all sorts of quarters of our mm -hmm. culture today. Right. Uh, and so I was really intrigued by the fundamentalist movement and the fundamentalist modernist conflict in general. And so I started reading and reading a lot on it uh, because I decided that's what I wanted to do my dissertation on. Mm -hmm. um, and as you read, you begin to ask questions and you notice things. And one of the things I noticed and one of the questions that came to my mind was, well, why is everyone in all of these stories uh, pretty much white? Why is there no consideration of other racial groups or other kind of racial contexts uh, in these stories? Now, every now and then you would have sort of a tangential um, subject or something that would just briefly touch on uh, racial minorities or African-Americans in particular. But in general, uh, everything was focused on uh, people in the white community. And sometimes it was made explicit, as scholars would say, well, fundamentalism was definitionally something that was restricted to the white community. Other times it would be sort of just implicit in the, the way that, uh, that the history was done, the kind of people that they were talking about. And so historians wouldn't necessarily say, well, fundamentalism is exclusively white, but the, their treatment of it would kind of send that message. And so I started asking the question, okay, well, surely for, for such a significant and influential movement, uh, surely this had to at least have some sort of expression in other racial contexts, because mm. one of the, you know, one of the major elements of society at, at this time in the early 20th century is the color line is Jim Crow and this division between white and black. Uh, but you certainly see conservative theological ideas crossing racial lines. And so I thought, well, surely there's got to be some sort of, uh, manifestation of fundamentalism in the African-American community. 
Uh, and so I started looking around to say, well, where's the book on this? Where's the work on this? And I didn't find a whole lot on it at that point. And so uh, I, I determined, well, I guess that's that's what I'll have to write my dissertation on. And that's what I'll eventually have to write my first book on. Uh, and, and that's how it uh, how it came about. Uh, and so as I was searching around, you know, there's no central archive for, you know, the, the archive of the writings of black fundamentalists, right? There's no central archive you can go to. So I was kind of casting about just to see if I could find anything to support my hunch that mm. there were uh, black fundamentalists, that this was actually a thing. Um, and so the first place I started really looking was searching through digitized newspaper archives from uh, black historical uh, weeklies, uh, historically black weekly newspapers. Uh, and I found quite a bit in the historical black weeklies in this time period, addressing the topic of fundamentalism and dealing with fundamentalism, not merely as something external to the black community, but as something that's actually occurring inside black churches and within the black community. So the I think maybe the, it's hard to remember exactly what I came across first, but maybe the very first thing I came across, I think this was it. It was an article in the Norfolk Journal and Guide titled, Our Group Are Fundamentalists in Religion. Hmm. And so I just saw that title and it, uh, I, I kind of rejoiced that, uh, that, that it seemed to be something along the lines of what I've been looking for. Uh, and it sparked my interest in the topic and seeing, uh, okay, there's, uh, there's at least, uh, a, a voice here in this newspaper that's saying fundamentalism is something that's going on in the African-American community. Uh, and so this article was overtly using and embracing fundamentalist terminology and a fundamentalist identity. Uh, and also, interestingly, connecting it with the hope for racial progress and advancement. In that article, the, the author talks about um, the fact that the, uh, the African-American race has seen a lot of progress since the days of slavery, and they've been uh, faithful to God in their, uh, in, their, in their faith, the old-time faith, the fundamental faith. And so there's no reason to abandon it now. Uh, because God is seeing to their progress and, and to their advancement. And so that was just a, a fascinating article that I, I happened to come across and really sort of launched my full-scale uh, exploration into this topic. And so I, I ended up going around to quite a few different uh, archives that had a lot of papers uh, and collections from Black ecclesiastical leaders hoping to find uh, relevant material, and I ended up uh, being fortunate to find quite a bit in in an array of archives, kind of scattered uh, around in different places across the country, um, to to really get into this topic. So that's kind of how it started, and where the uh, where the the thrust came from. Well, I think every historian uh, knows that feeling when you when you find the voices <laughs> speaking yeah. out to you from the archive. That's a that's an amazing feeling. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, some of those voices. Your first chapter. Uh, in the book examines these African-American newspapers. <laughs> and you note, um, this is a quote, that you say the black press, quote, considered fundamentalism to be for good and for ill, a widespread phenomenon within the black Protestant community. So what were per perceived as some of these positive gains that fundamentalism contributed to the African-American community? And what were the ills? How, how did the community understand this movement? Sure. Well, that sort of depended on who you asked or who was mm. writing the article. So as I was going through the, the, various, uh, the various newspaper uh, archives and articles that I found, um, you could often, uh, and, and I did on my little uh, spreadsheet that I, I kept all of the information on for all the articles, uh, I characterized them as pro-fundamentalist or anti-fundamentalist, or in some cases neutral. But very mm. most often, um, they either had a pro or an anti-fundamentalist bent. Uh, and so you had uh, people from sort of both sides of the issue in the African-American community writing in the newspapers about fundamentalism. Uh, and some of them were saying, well, it's a good thing. Right. And some of them were saying, well, no, it's actually a, a bad thing. It's harmful to the community. But people from both sides were assuming that it was a thing, that it was something that existed in the community. So I looked at that and said, well, that seems to indicate that there, there is at least a fundamentalist presence, right? There's not universal agreement as to whether the fundamentalist presence in the black community and in black churches is good or bad. There's different views on that, but at least both sides tend to agree 
that there are a pretty substantial number of fundamentalists in, in black churches and in the black community. Uh, so in terms of the good and the ill, uh, like I said, it depends a good bit on who you ask. Mm. Um, so pro-fundamentalist voices in the, uh, in the newspapers often identified fundamentalism with faithfulness to the religious heritage of the black community, what they sometimes termed the old time religion. Uh, and so, for example, in that article I just mentioned a moment ago in the Norfolk Journal and Guide, our group are fundamentalists in religion. Uh, that editorial even connected the faithfulness of the race to advancements that they had gradually experienced over time, most notably emancipation from slavery. And the implication was, well, they had been faithful to God and believing the old time religion and God had delivered them. And so he was continuing to deliver them. And there's no reason to waver in this traditional faith. And I've got a little bit of a, a quote here that I can read to you from that, uh, that kind of gives this sense. Um, the author writes, we find that Afro-Americans are fundamentalists for the most part. We have yet the simple faith that moves mountains. It has brought us thus far, and the belief is general, that it is sufficient to carry us further in the enlargement of higher and better things in human life and living. We have seen so many radical changes to our advantage in the gradual evolution of the past half century, and we are seeing so much of the like sort from day to day that we see no good and sufficient reason to waver in the faith or stumble in the promises. Yes, the Afro-American people are fundamentalists, and they can give a reason for the faith that is in them by pointing to what they have become in this free nation from what they began in the days of the colonies. Hmm. So that's really laying out that claim that fundamentalism is good and necessary in the community because it is the faith of, their, uh, of the people that has seen them through great uh, times of suffering and oppression and uh, and the faith that has seen them through to uh, the advancement of emancipation and as he says the the gradual um, the gradual advancement of the past half century that was written in uh, 1925 hmm. so that's one perspective now the other side for anti-fundamentalist voices in the newspapers, Fundamentalism was seen as sort of this backward, anti-intellectual, disreputable perspective. Um, there was the idea that, well, if if you're or if the if we have these fundamentalists in in the black community that are believing uh, things that go against human reason, things like the virgin birth that a virgin can can give birth, uh, then that is going to um, reflect poorly on the community. It's going to make the the race look foolish because there are a great many people then believing in unreasonable things. So it would actually be a hindrance to racial progress or to the task of racial uplift uh, because progress was contingent from, from this point of view on being kind of in accord with the cutting edge thinking of the modern world. Uh, and so one writer, for example, writing in the Chicago Defender talked about fundamentalism as being a hand-me-down religion from the white man. Uh, and so the, the idea there was this is a, a religion that's actually associated with slave owners and the, the sort of imposition of Christianity on African-Americans when they were enslaved. Uh, and it's been handed down, but it's not the true religion of the black race. Uh, and so whereas uh, the fundamentalist side was associating their faith with emancipation and advancement, the anti-fundamentalist side was associating it actually with slavery and oppression and a hindrance to racial advancement. And so there's two sort of polar opposite perspectives there in the, the weeklies, um, but both sides acknowledge the fact that at least this is uh, something that's going on in the black community that needs to be addressed and dealt with. Hmm, really interesting. Well, you note that black fundamentalist preachers did this very uh, interesting kind of rhetorical move um, where they could affirm the tenets of fundamentalism, which rejected modernism. Uh, but they also adopted uh, fairly progressive positions on racial equality. You've talked about this uh, a bit already, but explain what these preachers were preaching against when they would denounce modernism and then talk about how they incorporated racial equality into this belief system that in the white Protestant churches just maintained a very strict adherence to segregation. What were they doing there? Sure. So in terms of what they were preaching against uh, in their rejection of modernism, 
Uh, as I noted a little bit earlier, the modernist perspective was one that sort of tried to adapt Christian doctrine and Christian teaching to fit the ideas and the sensibilities and the philosophy of the modern world. Uh, and so there were certain, especially the more kind of miraculous or supernaturalistic doctrines of um, sort of older or maybe you might say more traditional uh, Christian faith uh, that seemed to be out of step with modern science and modern uh, reason and sort of the commitment to rationalism uh, and things of that nature. So, for instance, one of the most prominent modernist preachers of the era was a guy named Harry Emerson Fosdick. And one of his famous sermons, probably his most famous sermon, uh, was preached in 1922. It was called Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And he went through several different theological issues in that sermon and uh, and kind of expressed how the fundamentalists were uh, casting these ideas and how the modernists uh, responded. And he was, he was arguing for the inclusion of modernists within the scope of Christianity and uh, arguing against the sort of exclusivism of the fundamentalists. So a couple of the, the uh, theological issues he noted were, for instance, the virgin birth, uh, the inspiration of the Bible, uh, and, and the second coming of Christ. Those were three major things that he noted. So, for instance, on the virgin birth, he said, well, we believe, as the early uh, apostles of Jesus did, that he was special. We, uh, we adore him as they did. But the, the only way that their minds could come up with to kind of convey this idea that Jesus was very special and he was someone worthy of following and adoration was with this idea of being miraculously born of a virgin. So that was their way of saying that Jesus was a, a special and noteworthy figure. And we agree with them that Jesus was special and he deserves our, uh, our honor uh, and our devotion. Uh, but our modern minds can't use that sort of pre-modern, anti-scientific uh, phrasing or language that they cast it in. Uh, mm. So that was just their way of saying that Jesus was very special. And so we agree with them, but we, we have to reject the idea that Jesus was born of a virgin because that's sort of just pre-modern superstition, more or less. Uh, likewise, he said that the idea of the second coming, uh, that Jesus would literally come again. He said that the early followers of Jesus, the apostles or the, the authors of the New Testament, um, they sort of were working within this ancient framework of the idea of a, a literal second coming to establish a new age uh, that's governed by Christ, uh, something along those lines. And that was sort of the language that they used. But, uh, but we, as modern people, can't really buy into that. However, we agree with them that Christ is coming again. The way that he comes again is by... Um, by the world increasingly adopting the ethics and the virtues that he taught. So the ethic of love and virtue and brotherhood. And so the more we adopt those teachings and the more our society is sort of uh, created in a way that reflects those teachings of Christ, that is sort of the, the second coming of Christ. That is Christ ruling over the world. Uh, and so, we, but we can't believe in our modern minds uh, we can't believe in a literal second coming that Jesus is going to come again in the clouds and something like that, right? Mm. Uh, the fundamentalists, on the other hand, uh, certainly did believe in the literal virgin birth. They believed that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a virgin and she was miraculously impregnated by the Holy Spirit. They believed that Jesus was literally going to return on the clouds one of these days. Um, and, and so this is the sort of uh, adaptation, modernist adaptation that fundamentalists were uh, preaching against when they got into to these issues of the virgin birth or the divinity of Christ uh, or the inspiration of the Bible or, or what have you. Uh, so that's sort of what they were, they were inveighing against and they were denouncing is this modernist adaptation and what the fundamentalists saw as uh, wholesale changes that were being made to the Christian faith. And they said, well, if you if you change the doctrines of the faith that much, then you actually don't have the same faith. You've got a different faith and a different religion altogether. Hmm. Uh, now, they interestingly, like, like you noted, they incorporated racial equality into this belief system uh, in a way that 
their white fundamentalist counterparts would not really have thought to do. Some of them would have just not thought of it in, in general. Others would have thought it to be entirely contrary. Like I said, those like J. Frank Norris, who considered segregation to be the God-ordained social order, would have seen uh the kind of push for racial equality is actually antithetical uh, to the, the biblical message. But these black fundamentalists did begin to incorporate racial equality into this system of belief. Uh, so uh, a couple of, of examples that I note in my book, one really interesting one is from the National Baptist Convention meeting in 1925. Uh, the NBC was the largest black Baptist denomination in the country. And the president at the time was a guy named L.K. Williams, Lacey Kirk Williams. Uh, and he delivered this speech that was uh, recorded and reprinted in the, uh, in the denomination's newspaper. And in the speech, Williams, uh, among other things, gives his estimation and evaluation of the fundamentalist modernist conflict and very clearly comes down on the side of fundamentalism. He says that the fundamentalists are the ones who are truly representing the faith. They're the ones who are standing with the scripture. Uh, the modernists are uh, setting people adrift on a sea of doubt. They are shipwrecking people's faiths and things like that. And so he says, we need to stand on the side of fundamentalism. Uh, so he, he addresses some of the major theological issues uh, there. And then he goes on to say that, uh, that really to compromise on these sorts of issues is to dishonor the heritage of the National Baptist Convention, the people who actually believed these kinds of things, who established these pulpits, who established these churches, to abandon the, the old-time faith is actually to sort of spit in the face or repudiate the heritage of the people who established this, uh, uh, this denomination. Uh, so there's a racial kind of element of, of racial uh, fidelity there that he incorporates. But even beyond that, he says, moreover, the National Baptist Convention is the, the, um, the primary and best vehicle for showing the, uh, the world, for showing the nation, the ability of African Americans to uh, engage in sort of democratic self-government and, uh, and the, the fitness of African Americans to, um, to uh, govern ourselves and to engage in these democratic processes. And so it's important that, uh, that, we, uh, that we honor the faith of those who founded the convention because we need to be faithful in showing that we can, uh, we can govern ourselves and we can run our own institutions. And then he turns his, his, uh, his gaze, he turns his, uh, his thinking immediately to issues of, um, of social equality in a couple of different realms. He says, uh, as a result, the church needs to be the leading institution taking up issues of racial significance in the world. The church needs to be the leading voice in pushing, for instance, for increased funding for black schools, uh, as well as uh, taking up the push for uh, unfettered access to the ballot for black voting rights. Uh, and, and he says that this is the purview of the National Baptist Church, that the church ought to be leading this charge. But it can only be doing so, the implication is, it can only be doing so um, if it is faithful to its foundations, which are, are tied up in the the fundamentalist doctrines, which I find to be quite interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. There's other instances where you've got sermons from black uh, preachers, black pastors, who are taking things like, uh, you take the inerrancy of the Bible, for example, the idea that the Bible is, is the inspired word of God and does not have any error in it. And you've got instances where um, African-American preachers are taking that idea and spending a lot of time defending it, whereas modernists would say, uh, well, the Bible maybe reflects the way that people thought about God, but it's not really the word of God. It's not inerrant. It's not really inspired. Uh, you can't really take what it says literally. Um, there were black preachers who would, who would take up that issue and argue at length that no, the Bible is the inerrant, inspired word of God. And then they would make applications from that with respect to racial equality. And they would say, so because the Bible is the very word of God, it has uh, absolute authority to tell us what how the world works and how the world is. And so if you look at the Bible and if you look at a creationist view of the beginning of the world, not evolution, but if you look at the idea that the world was created uh, specially by God in six days and Adam and Eve were literal uh, people who are created by God, 
then you see that everyone in the world actually came from a common heritage. And then you look uh, at this message that's continued to be reflected, for instance, in the book of Acts, when Paul is, uh, is, is preaching uh, at, uh, at, in Athens. And he says that God made of, um, of one man all the peoples of the earth. And so the, the black preachers who are talking about inerrancy and who are hammering on these fundamentalist ideas say, you see, because we have an inerrant Bible, we can see that there actually is no essential difference between white people and black people. And so this, this teaching of the Bible actually undercuts the foundation of Jim Crow. It illustrates that Jim Crow is just built upon pillars of sand. Because we're all one. We all go back to one common ancestor or, or pair of ancestors, Adam and Eve, uh, in the Garden of Eden. But if you take a modernist view and the Bible actually isn't fully true and maybe it's evolution and not divine creation and the Bible doesn't, you can't really trust everything that's in the Bible. Well, those divine commands and those divine instructions and the, the divine message that all men and women are equal, that we're all from one uh, all made from one man and therefore are all of the same family. Well, that gets thrown out the window. Uh, and so the only firm foundation upon which to argue for the equality of black people with white people and the impropriety of the Jim Crow segregation structure is actually an inerrant, infallible, inspired Bible, because that's where you have actually God giving his rebuke to Jim Crow. And so you see this kind of rhetorical flourish and this kind of rhetorical turn in black fundamentalist preaching where they're taking these fundamentalist ideas and applying them to their situation as they're facing racial oppression and racial violence and segregation and Jim Crow and all these kind of things. Hmm. I want to look uh, just a little bit at the institutional side of things. Um, mm -hmm. You write in the book that, uh, quote, black fundamentalism was less institutionally rigid and less overtly separatist than its white counterparts. Yet, you note uh, in one of your chapters, especially, there were institutional supports for the movement. And you highlight the uh, African-American Bible schools, specifically the American Baptist uh, Theological Seminary in Nashville, Tennessee. It was this unique educational endeavor. Um, talk a little bit about that school, if you will, and how education an educational initiative supported black fundamentalism. Sure, absolutely. So uh, one of the things I was looking at when I started this research and started trying to dig into the topic was uh, Bible school. So I thought this this may be a, a fruitful way to uh, a fruitful way to go, a fruitful direction to look at. Uh, and again, I didn't find a whole lot of material that had already been written, but there was one um, one uh, chapter in a, in an edited book. Uh, a chapter by uh, a scholar by the name of Albert G. Miller, uh, A.G. Miller, and he was writing on fundamentalism in black uh, Bible schools uh, a little bit later in the uh, in the 40s and 50s. Uh, and so that gave me a little bit of direction. Um, he started writing, he was writing about uh, schools like the Southern Bible Institute and Carver Bible Institute. Uh, and so that let me know, okay, maybe I'm, I'm on the right track here, but I want to see if I can find something a little bit earlier. Uh, and so that led me down the road to eventually finding this school in Nashville called American Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, and it was it was a, a little bit uh, kind of just serendipitous uh, that I found this. I was going to the, the uh, Southern Baptist Historical Library and Archives. Just uh, as I said, I was kind of casting around from archive to archive trying to see what material I could find. Mm. And I saw that they had a collection on this seminary. Uh, and I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. And I'll, uh, I'll spend a few days looking at it because they said it was like 13 boxes. And I assumed that that was 13 kind of small boxes. And I got there only to find out that it was actually 13 rather enormous boxes. And it had <laughs> well more material than I could actually look at even in, uh, even in uh, a few weeks. Wow. And so I, I got there and I thought, man, if I had known this existed, uh, I, I would have just done my whole dissertation on American Baptist Seminary. Mm. Um, and I said to myself, if if, uh, if ever I get to write a second book, maybe I'll do it on ABTS. And that, that's my plan at this point. I actually hope to write a longer kind of institutional history on American Baptist Seminary because it's so fascinating. Mm. Um, but in any case, so I, I found this archive um, at the Southern Baptist uh, uh, Historical Library and Archives. And, uh, and I was 
really enthralled and just engrossed in it because the the story of American Baptist Theological Seminary is one of interracial cooperation and a, a joint project between the Southern Baptist Convention, which was uh, which was a, a white uh, convention at that point in time, uh, and the National Baptist Convention, which was the leading black Baptist convention at the time. Uh, and so this was a school for um, educating black Baptist clergy that was the result of this joint endeavor, this joint project between the white Southern Baptists and the black National Baptists. Um, and as I looked into the early documents about the school, the founding of the school, um, and the statement of faith and things like that, I saw that there was a, a tinge of fundamentalism in some of what was being done and taught there. Uh, and so when you look at certain of the leaders, when you look at the statement of faith of the school as it was put down in the 1920s, if you look at uh, some of the early leaders and teachers and uh, the, er the uh, early dean of the school, um, you see figures that are uh, that are certainly devoted to the theological tenets of fundamentalism, and in some cases are overtly uh, attacking or uh, or criticizing modernism and saying, "Well, that's not the way we want to go. We want our school to be uh, to to be following in the path of more theologically conservative or fundamentalist um, institutions." Uh, and so you've got this uh, this Bible school, this theological seminary, set up for Black Baptist students. That is, uh, in, in some of its early documents, and certainly its theological statement of faith early on, and some of its early leadership, is pointed in a fundamentalist direction and is defending fundamentalist theology and teaching fundamentalist theology. Uh, but at the same time, the National Baptist Convention was by no means an exclusively uh, fundamentalist convention. There were a lot of different theological perspectives within the denomination. Uh, and this is one way that that uh, I point out in the book that uh, black fundamentalism tends to differ from white fundamentalism is there was a very, very stark separatist streak in a lot of white fundamentalists mm -hmm. uh, for, for folks, for instance, again, like J. Frank Norris, they tended to separate from any groups that they even caught a sniff of modernism uh, amongst. And so uh, there was this tendency to just cut off and start something new or to separate from any hint of infidelity. Uh, but that's not quite so much the case in um, in the sort of black institutional circles, at least in part, I would argue, because, uh, because well, there's not nearly as much in the way of uh, resources to go and start entirely new institutions, uh, but also because there is a, a sense of commonality in terms of racial identity and the kinds of social and cultural and racial issues that they're facing and fighting. Uh, and so there's not nearly as much of a separatist streak in uh, some of these black fundamentalists. And so they, they were seem to be perfectly willing to stay in a denomination or an institution that was not exclusively fundamentalist. And so when we get to the American, uh, uh, the American Baptist Theological Seminary, you see that as the seminary develops over the, the first couple of decades, uh, you see that there's sort of these debates going on in National Baptist circles over what direction should the school take. Um, should it be this stridently theologically conservative institution in kind of the fundamentalist mold, or should it be modeled more after the more modernist uh, schools and seminaries that you may see in the North? Uh, and this becomes a, a bit of a debate and a conflict within National Baptist circles. Uh, it, in some ways, it reflects the various views on fundamentalism that I was talking about a little earlier in the Black Weekly newspapers, uh, with some saying fundamentalism is the way to, to ensure racial progress and other saying, others saying fundamentalism is a hindrance and we need to move away from it. So you've got folks in the NBC uh, who are arguing in favor of uh, the fundamentalist teaching in the school, and then others who are saying we need to move it in another direction. Uh, and this, this manifests in convention meetings, in debates between major figures. Uh, you've got, the, for instance, the editor of the uh, denomination's newspaper, the National Baptist Voice, uh, who published a, a, an editorial at one point uh, arguing that it was imperative if the race wants to be taken seriously, if the, the National Baptist Convention wants to be taken seriously, uh, the seminary has to 
move in the direction of the more modernist institutions in the North, because that's the way of intellectual credibility. And if we insist on continuing with sort of the backward anti-intellectual fundamentalist outlook, we're going to be a mockery or a, a laughingstock. Uh, and then you have the dean of the seminary coming out in a convention meeting with a speech directly responding to that editorial and saying, um, well, the, the editor of The Voice needs to keep in mind that uh, we have always rejected the innovations of theological modernism, and we're never going to move the school in the modernistic direction of places like uh, Chicago, like the University of Chicago. And we are perfectly happy uh, to uh, continue modeling ourselves after the, uh, after the pattern of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, which was the flagship Southern Baptist uh, Seminary, mm -hmm. uh, which was very, very theologically conservative. And so you've got this kind of back and forth within the National Baptist Convention arguing over, okay, what direction is the seminary going to take and should it take? Uh, and so you've got a, a great deal of um, disagreement over those kinds of issues. And so the seminary, I think, represents the fact that there was a degree of institutional support for this kind of theologically conservative fundamentalist uh, theological perspective in groups like the National Baptist Convention, but that was by no means something that was universal or ubiquitous, and it was also the site of a great deal of argument and conflict. Um, and if it were, say, a uh, if, if this were, for example, Frank Norris and the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, then you can imagine that there would be some sort of uh, severe split or fracturing, and either the, the seminary splits off to be independent or else it goes modernist, and then the fundamentalists split off and make their own uh, seminary or something like that. But that's not the case in uh, ABTS or in the National Baptist Convention. It goes to show, I think, that there were uh, other things that they also had to weigh and consider beyond just the theological commitments, things including um, the, the racial issues that they were trying to address in the world. And, uh, and so they were much more willing to stay within institutional structures that may, that may not have been universally uh, affirming of the fundamentalist perspective uh, in ways that are a little unfamiliar in the historiography of white fundamentalism. Yeah. Hmm. So um, I want to kind of talk big picture here for a second. You, sure. you use the method of inquiry in the book uh, that you call the historical theological method. I just discuss that method a, a bit. Help us kind of understand how this was a critical method in, in your project in, in recovering these black fundamentalist voices. Sure. Well, <clears throat> so I, I do call this a historical theological uh, kind of methodology. Uh, and the reason I did that is I was trying to avoid uh, reductionistic perspectives on a couple of extremes. So I wanted to kind of <clears throat> mediate between a couple of uh, tendencies, perhaps, toward reductionism. Uh, the first would be sort of an ahistorical reductionism. So studying uh, theological movements or groups like fundamentalism uh, ahistorically. So re uh, failing to recognize the idea that historical context and development has a great deal to do with the ways that theological movements are shaped. Right. The, uh, the theological formulations that a particular group or church has, they don't just descend out of the ether. They don't just uh, appear out of thin air fully, uh, fully developed. Right. There is a, a process of development of doctrine, development of various theological movements that's deeply tied to cultural and historical context. So that's the historical side of things and trying to combat that sort of ahistorical reductionism that only wants to look at the theological as sort of this, uh, this entity that's sort of floating in the ether, uh, disconnected from history or, uh, or culture. But then on the other end, I think there's this uh, kind of reductionistic perspective that doesn't take theology seriously enough in and of itself, where uh, theological and ecclesiastical ideas and convictions are sort of assumed to be merely... Uh, expressions to clothe deeper uh, convictions about um, social or cultural or political or economic issues and things like that. And so the idea mm -hmm. being, well, uh, religion and theology uh, are just ways of advancing these other ideas. They're sort of uh, they're, they're sort of ways of dressing up cultural or political arguments 
um, and advancing them in that way. But I think that that kind of perspective doesn't take seriously enough the uh, the fact that these historical actors, yes, they're they're a part of a particular cultural and historical context, but they also believe these theological issues to be deeply significant in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, they believe these to be issues of um, of ultimate destination, right? The destination of people's souls are at stake. And so there, there is a sense in which the theological issues are deeply significant. If you take these people on their own terms, if you kind of seek to understand them on their own terms, um, these are issues that are deeply significant as theological issues. And so the historical theological method that I talk about in the book is one that seeks to kind of uh, tight, uh, walk that tightrope a little bit. Um, at times I felt, felt like I was kind of trying to navigate uh, between Scylla and Charybdis, you know, kind of just trying to, to stay uh, right down the middle as much as I could and not deviate too much um, so that I gave the historical context its, its rightful due, but also treated the theology itself as worth considering and investigating because for the people, for the historical actors I'm talking about, they considered the theology to be deeply significant in and of itself. And so when you do that, I think it helps to uncover these uh, these black fundamentalist voices because you're, you're looking, and the way I treated the fundamentalist movement here, like I said earlier, was as a, uh, a centrally theological movement and endeavor. It was not exclusively theological. As I've said, they're applying their ideas and their theology to social issues, but it was centrally theological. And so whereas a, a lot of other treatments of funda- fundamentalism have focused on things like fundamentalist institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you do that, certainly fundamentalism is going to be a primarily or exclusively white endeavor because the, the institutions and those with institutional power and resources uh, in you know the Jim Crow era, those were, were white folks and folks like J. Frank Norris or William Bell Riley. And so if you treat it simply institutionally, then you're going to sort of miss the black fundamentalists there. Uh, it's also been treated at times with this focus on the the militant cultural battles that I spoke about a little bit earlier, either battles for you know prohibition or uh, battles against evolution in public schools. And again, if you treat it if you treat it on that basis, again, there's a lot that you can glean from that. There's a lot of important stuff that's come from that sort of area of study. Uh, but if that's where your focus lies primarily, then you're probably going to miss these black fundamentalist actors who are applying their theology to issues of race um, and and racial context. And so treating it as a centrally theological movement and doing so in the context of this historical theological method that's seeking to give both the historical context and the theological centrality their due, uh, you're able to kind of see these black fundamentalists in the historical record who have been otherwise, I argue, who have been obscured because uh, nobody's quite looked at it this way, who are aligned with this theological heartbeat, who call themselves fundamentalists. They use fundamentalist language and identifiers, but they're, they're not institutionalists in terms of having exclusively fundamentalist institutions generally. They're a part of denominations that have an, an array of views. They're not devoted primarily to the, to the, um, to the cultural battles that some of their more militant white fundamentalist counterparts are. And they're applying their fundamentalist ideas to issues that are uh, dealing specifically with their own racial context, which is something that typically in the study of fundamentalism hasn't been, uh, hasn't been uh, at the, the, the top of the, the heap in terms of things to, to look at and explore. In, in fact, it's been um, the opposite at times as people have, have looked at folks like J. Frank Norris and segregationism and sort of assumed well, I guess uh, white supremacy and segregationism are part and parcel of what fundamentalism is. Uh, when you look at it with this historical theological methodology that I put forth in the book, I think you can see that there are shortcomings to uh, to some of those other methods. I think there's shortcomings to every method, uh, but that the historical theological method adds simply another facet to our exploration of fundamentalism that helps us see some certain things that otherwise we wouldn't have been able to see. Uh, and first and foremost among those is the presence of these black fundamentalists in the historical record. Well, it is certainly an interesting way to, to approach this topic. Well, w- one more question, and this one is kind of uh, the bit of the forward-looking question. Are, are there any parts of 
American fundamentalism that you think remain either underexplored or even unexplored in uh, the literature at this point? If, if someone was kind of interested in taking up this topic and maybe tracing some of the different threads that, that you, you pick up in the book, uh, where, where are they going looking? Sure. I think there's a, a lot of directions that are still open for exploration. I think as much as there's been written in the field uh, on fundamentalism, I think there's a lot more to look at. I don't think by any means has it been exhausted. <clears throat> so uh, one of the great things about scholarship is how it, it builds on what's come before. And it's none of it is a, a solitary project, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. The work in the archives is often solitary. You're sitting there by yourself reading through papers. Uh, but the general project of scholarship is uh, very communal, and you're building on what's come before. That's something that was certainly uh, true for me in, uh, in um, t- kind of exploring black fundamentalism. One of the, the books that came out actually during, while I was doing my dissertation research and writing was Mary Beth Matthews' book uh, called Doctrine and Race, which mm-hmm. is exploring African-Americans uh, engaging with fundamentalism in this same period. And she does it through the lens of looking at the major newspapers of the four uh, largest Baptist and, and Methodist uh, denominations in uh, the African-American community at the time. So just the, the denominational newspapers. And she came to uh, she came to conclude that African-Americans were engaging with some of these ideas, but they weren't actually fundamentalists. You can't really say that there were fu- fundamentalists in the black community, but they were sort of uh, engaging with some of the controversies that they saw out there. But um, but they saw fundamentalism and modernism as basically white uh, a white conflict in, in the white community and things that um, that needed to be you know considered from a distance. And it's it's a very interesting book. I think Matthews did some really great work in there um, in, in analyzing some of those uh, denominational newspapers. But I, I kind of looked at that and tried to build on that a little bit to say, okay, well, there's uh, she's hit on something that's very important uh, that there hasn't been much on. African-Americans and fundamentalism, uh, the same uh, lack of, uh, of engagement that I had noted that motivated the start of my dissertation project. Uh, but I think that she she also doesn't quite go far enough because she says that there aren't black fundamentalists. And then I get into the, 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 uh, the broader sort of newspapers that are talking about fundamentalism in the black community and identifying some of these figures that I categorize as black fundamentalists and sort of build on that. And so I think there's plenty of places to continue to build. Um, just as, as I was able to build on Mary Beth Matthews book and, and very much appreciated what she had to say. Um, I think there are other ways that people can build hopefully on my work. I think I conceive my book as, um, a sort of, uh, 30,000 foot view kind of argument, right? I'm trying to argue and establish that there were such a thing as black fundamentalists, that this is Mm. actually a category that we should consider uh, in the black community, that it's something that is, uh, that, that is present in the historical record, uh, that there are black fundamentalists. And so it does take a relatively uh, broad look at a lot of different kinds of evidence, a lot of different kinds of people and institutions so I think that, you know, I'm trying to make this broad argument to say, hey, there's a lot of different ways in which we can look and see there are people that we should consider to be black fundamentalists. Now, I think there's a lot more work that can be done now um, based on that to get a little more detailed, right? To go from the 30,000 foot view down to more narrow views and maybe do more micro historical investigations of particular fun- black fundamentalist uh, figures or identifying particular churches or uh, associations of churches that may have been uh, in the fundamentalist vein or, or something like that and doing these kind of more in-depth explorations of some of these more specific manifestations of fundamentalism in the African-American community. I think that that is a, a direction that has a lot of promise. Uh, and even beyond the issue of race, I think there's other things that we can look in, in terms of uh, looking at fundamentalism with different lenses. I think um, gender and women's participation in the fundamentalist movement or in fundamentalist modernist conflict or, or debates is, uh, is a, a, a direction that has a lot of promise. There's uh, a scholar, a historian right now at Baylor, I know, uh, Andrea Turpin, who's working on uh, a book right now on that, uh, on that topic, on uh, women's 
engagement and roles in the modernist fundamentalist uh, debates and controversies. And I think there's a lot of room in that field or in that subset of the field to really engage more uh, on the issue of women and gender and how are they uh, in engaging these issues uh, similar to kind of what I've, I've done here in Black Fundamentalist with regard to the issue of race. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of directions that are still open and really there's there's wide vistas of scholarship that are open to scholars of the future. And I, I really quite look forward to seeing uh, what comes down in, uh, in the next few years or decades on some of these topics. Fantastic. Well, a lot of great work to be done, definitely. So, well, Daniel, thanks so much for talking with me today. If uh, listeners want to follow your work or engage with you, what's the best way for them to find you? Uh, well, so they can uh, they can follow me on Twitter. My uh, handle is at Daniel underscore Bear, B-A-R-E. Um, and you can find the book uh, anywhere uh, books are sold, as far as I know, on uh, on online booksellers, on Amazon. You can go to NYU Press, uh, their website, or uh, or anywhere else that you care to buy books, um, and uh, and and check out the book. Uh, they can check out the book for themselves. Excellent. Well, thanks again, and congratulations on the book and on and on all your work. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And thank you for listening to the New Books Network. This has been New Books in History with Dr. Daniel R. Baer. He is the author of Black Fundamentalists, Conservative Christianity and Racial Identity in the Segregation Era, published by New York University Press in 2021. Make sure and subscribe to New Books in History and check out all of the other New Books Network feeds. Happy listening and happy reading.